Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week we'll be marking World AIDS Day, December the 1st. We'll discuss the future of spaceflight. Mars was a lot like Earth and was warmer and wetter, it appears. And if life didn't claw in there when it had an opportunity, and it did here in the same period under reasonably similar conditions, you've got to ask yourself why. If there's never, ever been any life up there, then when you look at the night sky, you're probably looking at a desert. And we'll hear how women can overcome sexist stereotypes in physics courses. The education gender gap in the U.S. has rapidly narrowed in recent decades, with women now earning the same number, if not more, undergraduate and doctorate degrees as men. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. This week, my FT colleague, pharmaceuticals correspondent Andrew Jack, is here as usual. Hello, Andrew. Hello. And we have two special guests. Sir Nick Partridge, chief executive of the Terence Higgins Trust, is Britain's best-known AIDS campaigner, and I'm sure the only one honoured with a knighthood for his services to the field. Welcome, Nick. Hello. We'll be talking about AIDS treatment and research shortly. But first, let me introduce our other guest, Kevin Fong of University College London, who is an expert on space medicine and has a very wide range of scientific interests based on his two degrees in astrophysics and medicine. He's gestured three to me. Welcome, Uh, Kevin. What's the third? uh, Engineering. I did that a couple of years ago, some aerospace engineering. I got fed up of talking to engineers and telling me I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, that (laughs) is amazing with your trio of degrees. Tell us first how it feels to be a space medicine specialist in a country which seems less willing to spend money to send people into space than almost any other big industrial democracy. When I started out, I faced the choice of whether or not I moved to the United States and tried to make my way that way, or whether I stayed here and fought the good fight. And things have changed, I think. Uh, so I think UK government has got a slightly more mature attitude towards human spaceflight now. Do you think that more mature attitude is actually going to result in more Britons going into space? Well, we've got a British astronaut now, haven't we, in Tim Peake, who's selected by European Space Agency. And I think we recognise that we should be part of this game. It's just finding a way to make it financially acceptable, I think. How can it be financially acceptable in this age of austerity? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? Hardest thing to justify, especially when you're facing the times that we are now. I think there is an argument, and there's a well-articulated argument through a series of reports that suggests that we should engage to a greater degree in international programs of human space exploration strategically rather than perhaps in a full, you know, multi-billion dollar programmatic way. But even the Americans have a lot of uncertainties. I mean, there are only probably two more shuttle flights. The shuttle's retired, and then the only space vehicle is going to be the veteran Russian Soyuz to take people to and from the space station. Isn't that going to be rather an extraordinary period, probably a period of several years? Yeah, the remarkably reliable Soyuz is left on on, on the playing field. I I think it's a fascinating time for human space exploration. I think we're at a real hinge point in the whole affair. 
it is entirely possible that in the future we stop sending people into space. It is entirely possible, as it is possible that we successfully get the commercial guys up to bat, make the whole thing cheaper, make the whole thing sustainable, and move on to explore at least you know near space. Nick, perhaps I can bring you in. For someone who's devoted your working life to raising money for medical research and treatment, how do you see the prospect of spending or not spending trillions of dollars as it would take to send people to asteroids, to Mars and so on? Does it appeal to you? I love the idea of interplanetary investigation and exploration. I, of course, was a young boy when I watched the moon landing. It's a defining moment, I think, uh, for my generations and generations that have followed. There is that range that we're very conscious of between the discovery uh, that space flight uh, can provide us with and the sustainability of uh, continuing to challenge major health issues on Earth. Andrew, what's your take on this? How different is medicine in space? You divide it up into the science that you need to do to understand what happens to crews when they go into space. And this is an expedition like any expedition, and it's a challenge just to keep you well. If things go wrong, then you have to work out how to deliver healthcare. And everything that you can think of in a hospital that you take for granted, from the drip that you hang, everything doesn't work. What about the people who say that, yes, we can go into near-Earth orbit, we can go to the moon briefly, but going to Mars and beyond is going to be fundamentally impossible because of the intense radiation, for example, the unpredictability of space. Are there any factors that you think could scupper the dream Dreams of people like me, because I'm in, I'm in, I'll declare my position, I'm all in favour of sending people to Mars if we can. But might it be medically impossible? I don't think so. I've spent probably the last 10 years really thinking this down hard. And there are no fundamental obstacles to the human exploration, certainly of Mars, beyond that there are some issues perhaps. But of Mars, no. And you have to understand what's at stake here. On Mars is the question of whether or not life is ubiquitous throughout the universe or not. You know, Mars was a lot like Earth about four billion years ago and was warmer and wetter, it appears. And if life didn't claw in there when it had an opportunity, and it did here in the same period under reasonably similar conditions, you've got to ask yourself why. If there's no, never, ever been any life up there, then when you look at the night sky, you're probably looking at a desert. Would you like to go? Oh, it depends on whether or not my wife's listening, really. Uh, I, I, would, I would absolutely love to go. Now I'd be content if this mission happened in my career lifetime. I think you'll be lucky if it happens in your life lifetime. Anyway, let's turn now to AIDS research and treatment. And incidentally, do look out in the FT on December the 1st for our special report, which we do every World AIDS Day, looking at research and treatment advances. Nick, how much does it help your efforts and the efforts of bodies like the Terence Higgins Trust to have an annual day for the disease? It's enormously important. It provides... One focus for UNAIDS globally to be able to remind all of us just the sheer scale and pace of the global HIV epidemic and to identify where successes have happened. So we have seen this year that a number of countries have been successful in their prevention efforts and have slowed the spread of HIV. And the major challenges, particularly around continuing the delivery of really cutting-edge drugs to the world's 
poorest people. And given that the epidemic is only 29 years old, it was only first described in 1981, it is an extraordinary scientific and political achievement to be delivering complex drug therapy to some of the world's poorest people. It's how we sustain that that is the biggest challenge we face. Andrew, you've been covering AIDS more than anyone on the FT this year. You went to the World AIDS Conference. How do you see things? Well, I think, of course, Nick's absolutely right, isn't it? It's pretty remarkable in the space of less than three decades that we've gone from a a new and unrecognised, uncharacterised disease to turning something that was a a death sentence into something that is manageable for people who have access. And it's been quite interesting. I think even in the last year, we've seen a lot more excitement about some of the more fundamental scientific challenges, the resurgence of discussion about a cure or very long-acting drugs that sort of keep uh, the risks of the virus very low. Nick, what do you think about treatment as prevention? We now have certainly proof of concept, and I think two trials were enormously encouraging this year. The challenges that come with this are manifold. Firstly, what are the ethics of placing HIV-negative people on daily treatment in an environment where too few people living with HIV are able to access treatment. Secondly, what are the risks of growing resistance? We know that this is a virus that can work its way round these drugs because it doesn't replicate very well. So what are the risks of having large numbers of people on treatment uh, for future resistance? It opens up another level for prevention, which we're desperate to find. Condoms remain the cheapest, easiest to use, most effective form of prevention at the moment. But alone, our history shows that they're not enough. Even if one looks at somewhere like the UK, which obviously is pretty well resourced, still we've got continued rise of infections in certain subgroups, gay men, African immigrants and so on. I mean, how do we stop the increase in infection in those sorts of groups. In many ways, this is where the rocket science now is, the the behavioural change work, because while many clinicians in particular really place a lot of stress on or emphasis on reducing community viral load, if you like, we know that within the UK um, we've done that for the last 15 years, in effect, but we continue to see ongoing transmission, particularly in the early stages Uh, of someone's life with HIV. So immediately after they have been infected with HIV themselves, by definition, uh, they're having an unsafe sex life, um, they are most uh, infectious, and we see about 60 to 70% of all new infections from those who don't know they have HIV. So it's got to be a package of things, and that includes reducing undiagnosed infections still running at about 25% in the UK. So one in four don't know that they have HIV. What can we do to really release the very easy HIV tests that we now have? That's where other technological advance has been so good. Just a tiny finger prick and you get the result in 20 minutes. Kevin, what's your perspective from your medical background? I do use regard this as one of modern medicine's success stories. Look, the the, the challenges are vast even today, but I I was a medical student 15 years ago, just starting on the wards, and back then we had two full inpatient units where 
people did appallingly badly once admitted and it was one of the most emotional times of, of my medical training and back then we, we used to refer to people who, who were alive 10 years after diagnosis as, as long-term survivors and now there is no such thing as you know a, a, a time limit and, and that's amazing I thought back then there was there would never be anything we could set in the way of this so it's one of the things that will mark me out thanks very much now it's time to move on to Sophia Kai in Washington for our weekly contribution from Science Magazine. Thanks, Clive. The education gender gap in the U.S. has rapidly narrowed in recent decades, with women now earning the same number, if not more, undergraduate and doctorate degrees as men, but not in the sciences. And this gap persists despite many efforts to encourage women to pursue science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And so that's raised the question, what else is remaining that's an obstacle? Tony Schmader is a psychologist at the University of British Columbia. And so research from this kind of perspective suggests that there are psychological obstacles that are simply created by being in a society where certain groups of people are underrepresented in some domains. It's a vicious cycle. So long as the underrepresentation continues, so too does the gender gap. But in a paper in the latest issue of Science, Akira Miyake and colleagues report that this gender achievement gap can be substantially reduced by using a form of psychological intervention called values affirmation. It's very simple. This is a writing exercise that takes about 15 minutes. And in this exercise, students were given a list of different values, like family and friends, learning and gaining knowledge, religion, politics, you know, all sorts of different kinds of things. And they selected two or three values that they value most and wrote about them, why those things matter to those students. While previous research has shown that this kind of values affirmation exercise works to reduce minority achievement gaps in school-age children, Miyaki wanted to see if these results held for older students, those in a first-year physics class at the University of Colorado, in which, year after year, men not only outnumber women, but they consistently perform better on exams and earn higher course grades. But among the people who did the affirmation exercise, this gender gap was significantly reduced. In terms of course grades, A, B, C, D, letter grades, what we found was that among the men, control versus values affirmation, different writing exercises didn't make much of a difference. But for women, doing affirmation increased Bs and reduced Cs. So there is a change in the distribution of letter grades. But scientists aren't sure why this simple generalized intervention works. It could be that it is helping women learn the material better, which elevated scores on the standardized conceptual test suggests. Or it could be that this intervention, which really has nothing to do with physics, is simply helping women perform better on tests. Tony Schmader says it's probably a little bit of both. It means that you go into the next situation, the next exam, the next classroom exercise, the next group project, having a different frame because you were less threatened the last time, and that means you can be less threatened the next time you go into a similar context. And so these things can build on each other and produce these long-lasting effects over time. But, study author Miyaki says, there's still work to do to find out if these semester-long lasting effects could translate to more women getting their doctorates in the sciences down the road. And so it's interesting possibility that this kind of affirmation, this kind of intervention could have really long-term effects. It might not be restricted to this particular course. And that longitudinal effect of this affirmation is something that we're also interested in studying. For Science Magazine, I'm Sophia Kai. 
You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Sophia, and thanks to Science and AAAS. Kevin, do you think space flight has done a lot for women in science? I think it has. Only in latter years, I mean, let's not over-egg it, Valentina Tereshkova flew, and then they, the, the Russians now, to my knowledge, don't have any women in their astronaut corps, cosmonaut corps anymore. Uh, and the, the Americans were late in replying with Sally Ride. Um, so, but now, I think, yes, uh, it, it, it's seen as you know, something that both men and women aspire to. Uh, and there's at least some studies to suggest that this area, human spaceflight, is as attractive to, to women as it is to men. If we move, Nick, beyond science and look at sort of the AIDS community more broadly, it's, it's an interesting case if you look at the sort of male-female side of it because it was originally identified as a gay men's disease. Then people realised that it, it was far from that. How, how do you see the sort of male-female side of AIDS research treatment and campaigning now? Certainly women um, have come to the fore in the campaigning side uh, of HIV, not least because right from the early days, so many women were friends of gay men and wanted to march with them side by side. And within the UK, uh, if you look at the research response, um, there's Professor Janet Derbyshire, who head up the uh, Medical Research Council's AIDS unit for many years and has recently uh, retired and of course in uh, government terms currently the head of research and development at the National Institutes of Health Research in the UK is Professor Dame Sally Davis so uh, another woman leading in health research in the UK and I think HIV has been an area where many women have found a way to explore uh, their scientific boundaries. Thanks very much. And on behalf of this, unfortunately, all-male panel, going to have to wrap up now. Please join us again next week for more tales from the world of science, including edible clothing for Christmas. But now I'd like to thank Nick, Kevin and Andrew for joining me, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts support for this podcast and the following message come from corient corient provides wealth management services centered around you as one of the largest integrated fee only registered investment advisors in the u.s corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals no matter how complex Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.